Hey, Venture. Yeah, leadership is lauded. Following is underrated. But as we have been exploring for the last several weeks together through this series, following is exactly what he's called us to do. And so we want to lean in how to be better disciples. You know, um, following is exactly what he's called you to do. And, and I want to challenge you this morning to do it, to follow with all of your heart. Let me give you a hint. That actually might be a little bit easier said than done. That also might not mean exactly what you think it means. We're going to lean into that here in just a minute. Today, I want to talk about a word, passion. Passion is what we're talking about today. And when I think of passion, I can't help but think of dudes who are sold out to an activity doing something that makes their heart sing. Are there any race fans out there? Anybody out there living here in the Indianapolis area that are race fans? All right. So uh, I want to tell you a story about a race driver. This is a story from the 70s. Uh, his name is Nicky Lauda, three-time Formula One F1 world champion. He had a moment. He had a day, a tragic day a life-defining day in 1976, huge accident. He'd been talking for a while about the uh, danger of driving in the rain or driving when this particular racetrack is wet. It was like a 14-mile-long track. It was known for its treachery. It had killed five drivers already. He called for a race, uh, or rather a, a vote the day of the race. Should we have this or should we not? He was beat out. He was voting no. He was beat out by one vote. He's going into a turn. He spun out, ended up in the guardrail. His car is engulfed in flames. These are his words. After he had felt something break loose in his car, and the car is now erupting into flames, he, he said he was, quote, stuck inside his car for 55 seconds at 800 degrees. That sounds terrifying to me. He was sent to the hospital. He falls into a coma, and they're treating third-degree burns. There's damage to his lungs because for 55 seconds, he's inhaling, I don't know, jet fuel or whatever it is that's uh, burning up there from that car. He says, according to his words, he said he was right on the point of death for days. He actually says, I thought I did die once. A priest comes in. I think he's Catholic. A priest came in and read him his last rites, and something about that made him angry, and it made him fight even harder to survive. Well, survive he did. Get this. Six weeks later, Six weeks later, he's back in the cockpit, and he's driving his car, and he, w he lost that race by one point, got a photo, to this guy, James Hunt, lost by one point six weeks later. The very next year, he's driving for Ferrari. The very next year, he won the championship. He won again then in 1984. He died just a few years ago. In 2019, he died an old man. This photo, my goodness, it shows the scars that he wore on his body. What is it? What is it that drives a dude to almost burn up inside of a car wreck, almost die, and then climb back into the cockpit six weeks later, driven so hard, a year later he's back on top of the game again? One word, passion. Passion. This week, we're talking about the apostle 
of passion. And let me ask you this, do you run a little bit hot? Do your RPMs run a little bit high? Are you the type of person that you're not good at feathering the clutch? Downshifting is hard for you. Well, the title of today's message is aimed at you because you were made for this. You could subtitle this message, How Did Jesus, or rather, How Does Jesus Change a Passionate Heart to More Reflect His Own? That's what we're leaning into today. Let's catch up where we've been, take a sneak peek at where we're going. I put this chart up last week. There's four places in Scripture where the 12 apostles are mentioned by name, lists, if you will. Here's the list, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. Today we're talking about the apostle James, and I want you to notice where he shows up in the list. He bounces back and forth. Sometimes it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Sometimes it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew, but he's always in that top four. Can you say pole position? He's real close. There are several James that are mentioned in Scripture. My middle name is James. My dad's first name is James. I was named after him. My firstborn, his middle name is also James. It's a popular name today. It was a more popular name, perhaps, in Scripture. We find three different James recorded in Scripture. Two of them, you'll notice, are found in this list. You've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You've got another James, the son of Alphaeus. James, son of Alphaeus, recorded right here. Now, um, you, there's another James that shows up, and this gets real confusing in our Bibles. The book of James. By the way, if you're newer to faith, could I encourage you? The book of James found toward the end of your New Testament. It's an incredible read. Short book, hard-hitting book, challenges, especially those of us who run a little bit hot. He talks about controlling the tongue. He talks about anger. It's a pretty important read. That James is the half-brother of Jesus. Incredible read. We're not talking about that James today. We'll do a series at some point talking about James. This James, son of Alphaeus, let me tell you about him. He's got a nickname. Last week we talked about Peter, how Simon, born Simon, Jesus gave him the nickname Peter. This happens a lot of time when guys are hanging out, spending a lot of time together. We pick up nicknames. That happened, Simon became Peter. This James, James and John, they became known as the sons of thunder. Mark chapter 3 uh, talks about this idea. There's something in his fiery personality. He's known as the son of thunder. James probably comes from a prominent and wealthy family. Actually, we read in Mark chapter 1 that when Jesus calls James to follow him, he leaves their father with the, quote, hired men, or you could translate that, servants. This is a wealthy family who had enough money to pay for such things. Actually, he had status as well. So James' dad, Zebedee, had some connection to the priestly families in Israel. They had a political connection with the high priest. If you look at the end of Jesus' life, there's a moment where Peter is allowed into the courtyard where Jesus is going through a mock trial. Why? Because this family had connections with the high priest. They were connected. They were wealthy. Now, I mention that really just kind of as a subnote. We live in an area where there's some affluence, do we not? There's this kind of idea inside of the Christian subculture. Sometimes we look at that a little bit sideways, almost as if, well, 
that's less than. Let me just say this. People who are wealthy need Jesus too. This is true of James and John. They leave everything to follow Jesus. They leave their wealth behind. It's not that money is the, is the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Wealthy people need Jesus as well. This is true of James. It's true of John. James is likely the older brother. He's always mentioned first. It's James and John. Of the three disciples that are in Jesus' closest circle, Peter, James, John, he was privileged to witness a whole bunch of things firsthand. He got to see Jesus' power in rising from the dead. He saw the glory of Jesus when he was transfigured. Perhaps you remember that story. He saw Jesus' sovereignty when Jesus unfolded the future for him on the Mount of Olives. He saw Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. All these events probably strengthened his faith and made him a better follower, equipped him for the suffering and the martyrdom that he would eventually fall to himself. There's, again, if there's a key word that applies to this apostle, it's the word passion. He was a man of intense fervor and intensity. James, the son of Zebedee, teaches us that you can be very close to the ministry of Jesus. You can actually hear the clear teachings of Jesus, and you can continue to impose your own opinions of what you think Jesus should be like rather than listening to what Jesus actually says. That's not healthy first followership. That's confusing. We've been looking at this each week. That's actually confusing following with leading. Leadership is lauded. Following is underrated, but following is exactly what he's called you to do. Passion. Don't impose Jesus on Jesus, your own idea of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Your opinions, your intuitions, your presuppositions, sometimes they're broken. Sometimes they're corrupted by the sin inside you. They're influenced by the sinful culture around you. You want them to be influenced by Jesus. Jesus gets to set the terms on his own ministry. And what following him should look like for all Christians, and more specifically, what following would look like for you and for me. Jesus' teachings were countercultural. They run against the mainstream. They don't run with it. Jesus taught contrary to the culture on marriage and sexuality. He taught contrary to the culture on sin and death, on wealth and poverty, on strength and weakness, on hypocrisy and righteousness. Let me say it this way. First followers, we're not called to set the agenda. Uh-uh. We follow the agenda setter. We're called not to lead, not where Jesus is concerned, but to follow. Now, I don't know. We talked about James being one of the sons of thunder. I don't know if it's that. that do you remember the Tom Cruise movie, Days of Thunder? That keeps rolling through my brain as I prepped for this sermon. I don't know if it's that or who James is, but I have this racing imagery that's just been going through my brain this entire time I've been working on this. James, his passion, it reminds me of the driver of a fast car. He's got a lead foot, and he knows how to use it. So maybe we need to restate that about following the agenda that Jesus sets. Maybe we should put it this way. Don't get in front of the pace car. Are you an Indy 500 follower? You know what the pace car is? 
I'm not a big race fan, but I think that might actually disqualify you if you get in front of the pace car. The same is true in our walk with Jesus, our discipleship journey. You can get in so much trouble if you get in front of Jesus. Don't do that. I, uh, I had this experience like 14 years ago. It was such a cool experience that uh, actually Dawn printed up a book to celebrate it. You can see some of the pictures here from this book, the front cover, the back cover, pictures of two, my two oldest boys that are in college now, cute little boys. They're big boys now. This was one of those magical days that was so much fun. Dawn ended up taking all the pictures and making a book out of it. So we were given some tickets to get to go to the Indianapolis 500, to sit right behind Pitt Row. Helio Castroneves won the race that year. He actually was in pole position. He was here. I don't know who was number two, but number three was Ryan Briscoe. I know that he was the driver there because Don's cousin, Matt, this guy right here, he was the gas man. He was in the pit crew for that particular driver. So we're getting to sit here. The winner's here. Another team member of Team Pinsky is sitting right here. And Matt, through the whole race, he's like introducing us to the driver's wives and kind of telling us what's going on when he had a minute or two. We got to take some pictures together with him. It was one of those magical experiences. So this week, as I was prepping for this sermon, I called Matt up. By the way, Good morning, Matt. I hope you're with us today. He told me he might join today. They're actually driving. He's driving a semi-truck across the country. So maybe you're joining us from some, somewhere in the middle of the heartland today on his way to Southern California where they're testing the, the race car out uh, this, this next week. He works now for Ed Carpenter, who's located here in Indianapolis. And I called Matt up, and I said, hey, help me tighten up some of my language surrounding racing when I think about some of this imagery. He was so helpful for me there. And uh, he's the kind of guy, because he's a race guy, he uses language like trading paint and moving to the outside or moving to the inside, even in conversation like the checkered flag. This is an everyday conversation point as a metaphor for winning or completion. Some of you know guys like this. I want to share with you right now three moves, three big moves in, if you take James, his life recorded for us in Scripture, and you compare it to racing, there's three moments, three big moves where he moves to the inside, he moves to the outside, and he has a big photo finish. I want to share those with you right now. If you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, he traded paint with insiders, traded paint. Matt was explaining to me that comes from like stock cars that are painted up and when they get aggressive trying to control the inside track, they mix it up a little bit and paint gets swapped back and forth between those cars. James does this. He has a moment where his passion gets out in front of him and he ticks off the guys around him. Sometimes passion people have to learn to get along even with their own tribe with insiders. There's a story in Scripture that has to do with thrones in heaven. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Matthew 20, 20. Let's look at an inside, the inside lane of his life and a conversation that happens here. His mom shows up. 
She's following along this close tribe, this inside group of people that's following Jesus. The mother of Zebedee's sons. We know her elsewhere in Scripture. She's described as Salome or Salome. She came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of Jesus. What do you want? He asked. She said, well, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right, and the other one sit at your left in your kingdom. That's bold. We read another place in Scripture that James and John actually put her up to this. This isn't just extreme helicopter parenting. James and John kind of pushed her into this question. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Notice he didn't answer her. He turns directly to the boys. I know what's going on here. You don't have any idea what you're asking. Then he asks the question, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We're going to talk about what that means here in a few minutes. We can, they answered rather naively. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. That's God's. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. This bold request that comes from James and John, they had heard earlier, Jesus had said that... um, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the afterlife, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus then immediately followed that up with a promise and was also a reminder that many who are first will be last, and the last first. He kind of reinforces the idea that your job is to follow, not to lead, but all that James and John heard in that moment was the promise of thrones. Let's keep reading. What happened? When the ten, the rest of the disciples, the insiders, there's swapping paint that happens right here. They heard this. They were indignant with the two brothers. You would be too. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. That is emphatic. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and then the rest of that sentence is, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me say it this way. First followers don't need a throne. They already have a king. First followers don't need a throne. You don't need to sit on a place of self-importance. Why? Because, well, leadership is lauded. Following is underrated. And following is exactly what he's called you to do. You don't need a throne because you've got a king. Why were the ten indignant? Because James was angling for a throne. He was out in front of the pace car. And they called foul. That's not what he's called us to. Stop it. Do you run a little hot? Are you good with that accelerator pedal? Is passion a part of how people would describe you? (laughs) You don't need a throne. You already have a king. Here's the second moment in James' race. The race that he's running with his life. Here's the second moment we see. He hung on his right rear outsiders. I grabbed that language from my buddy Matt. He hung on his right rear outsiders. It's this moment in racing when somebody's behind you and they're trying to pass. Matt explained it this way. He said that's a tenuous moment in racing. 
Because out on the outside of the track, he said, that's where all the marble hangs out. I said, marble, what are you talking about? He said, like chunks off of the tires. Chunks, maybe even off of the car. There's some debris out there, and that's kind of a risky move to come to the outside to try to cut in. It made me think about community. Insiders, maybe that's us. Outsiders, maybe that's folks who are still far from God, and they're trying to get in on this race that we're living with our lives. There's a moment where James, well, he he hangs them up on his right rear. Sticks them out there on the outside, doesn't let them come in on the race that he's running with Jesus. Passion. Passion can mess with the insiders. It can be overwhelming to outsiders. There's this moment in the story where he literally calls down fire from heaven. This is one of those stories that at first blush, it's a little bit overwhelming. What in the world is going on here? Because there's some context that we need to explore as we read, as we study this story. We look at this idea of outsiders. Don't hang them up on your right rear as you're racing. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Here's the story. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Another translation says he set his face toward Jerusalem. I love that imagery. Jesus is on mission. He's getting ready to go and die for the sins of the world. He's on mission. And he sent messengers out ahead who went into a Samaritan village, hold that thought, to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. You need to understand that the Samaritans... And the Jewish people, there's bad blood there that goes back literally centuries. There's a lot of context here. I've got a friend of mine who's a Bible scholar. He says this. I love this phrase. He says, the Bible is meant to be read. It's meant to be interpreted through a geographical lens. You always have to look at the Bible with layers. Sometimes you read the story that's happening here. Well, something also happened in that same spot Years, maybe even hundreds of years before that moment. That's what's happened in this story. Likely when they walked into Samaria, Peter, James, John, the rest of the disciples, they had this event on their mind. The folks that lived there, they might have had this event on their mind as well. People in the first century oftentimes would walk all the way around Samaria so they didn't have to walk through it because there was bad blood between these two groups of people. But Jesus had had nothing but goodwill toward the Samaritans. He healed a Samaritan's leprosy. He accepted water from a Samaritan woman. Perhaps you remember that story, that he stayed there in that village with that woman's family for two days, evangelizing to her neighbors. He made a Samaritan the hero of one of his best parables, his best-known stories. Later, he would command his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, the Great Commission, he says, go preach the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. He had great heart, kindness, goodwill toward the Samaritans, but they were treating him with deliberate contempt. Why? Centuries of bad blood. They were kind of viewed as half-breeds. Genetically, spiritually, When the northern tribes were carried off into captivity, the folks that lived in this region, they were those who intermarried with the Canaanites from the area. They were the ones left behind. 
They had, had gone to the trouble even of building their own temple to worship, kind of a, a version of their God that was part God of Israel, part God of the Canaanite, the small g gods of the, the, the false gods of the area. It was kind of a mixture, a religion that blended elements of truth and paganism. And they felt less than. They felt like outsiders compared to the Jewish people. Several hundred years before that moment, Elijah, one of the great prophets of Israel, he had a confrontation, confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Perhaps you remember that story. He picked a fight with the king of Israel at the time. His name was Ahab. Let's read about King Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 16, check this out. He, Ahab, when he came to power, he set up an altar for Baal and, the, and a temple of Baal that he built in, where's, where are we at? Samaria. Context for the story in the New Testament. He made an Asherah pole. This aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, more so than any of the other kings of Israel before him. This is another way to worship a false god. Skip ahead in the story, Ahab's son, Ahaziah, he's king now. He gets hurt. He falls through a roof. Let's see what he does. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Again, in the same region that the disciples are hanging out in now. He had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. This is where we are. And injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. This is a Philistine city. To see if I will recover from this injury. Baal, Zebub. This is a Philistine deity. His name literally means Lord of the Flies. Nasty maggots, flies that hang out on dead things and dung. You get the idea of what they were worshiping here, Baal, Zebub. If you skip ahead to the New Testament, so revolting was this to the Jews that they altered the name Baal-zebub to Baal-zebub. You can read about this in the New Testament. Specifically, let me show you in Luke chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus was driving out a demon. The demon left. The man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, hey, he's doing this by Baal-zebub. They're accusing Jesus. The very next line, Jesus said, he, he draws an equal sign between Beelzebub and Satan. Satan. Satan worship is a part of this outside uh, approach to the Bible, approach to faith. Let's go back to the Old Testament context. Ahaziah. He is trying to, the king here is trying to finish what his dad and his mom, Jezebel and Ahab started. He's trying to kill Elijah. He sends 50 men and a commander of those 50 men to kill Elijah. Because Elijah's pushed back and said, you can't be worshiping Satan. No, no, no. We need to clean the house here a bit. The king has had it once for all. He sends this group of people to kill Elijah. There's almost like this, this confrontation. He's almost like relaxed as he responds to him. Notice this in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10. Elijah answered the captain, If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and the 50 men. And then it happened. Not just once, but twice. Because after that, the king sent another group of 50 men and their commander. So twice it happens. Fire from heaven comes down, and that's like 100, 102 men have just been burned up. 
The third group that shows up, that commander got a little bit wise, and he grabbed Elijah and said, hey, would you please come with me? Let's go see the king together. He goes, and he has a confrontation with the king, and God kills the king. Judgment is on him. Satan worship does not mix with true faith. All of this is, has to be in the back of James' mind. In this moment, these folks have been rude to Jesus. No, you can't stay here. Let's go back to our story with James. He's in this Samaritan village. Remember, he's a man filled with passion. His dander gets worked up. It's like when you're watching the movie Braveheart. By the end of that movie, you're the one screaming, freedom! I'm ready to, you know, behead Robert the Bruce. Just let me at him. So what does James do in this moment? Well, let's keep reading. Luke chapter 9. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, you've refused Jesus? You outsiders? They asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? This is what's in the back of their mind. Elijah did it. Why can't we? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples, well, they just went on to another village. What in the world? This is not in your job description, James. Jesus could do that if he wants to do that. He actively chooses not to do that. Why? Well, remember, he had set his face toward Jerusalem. Let me say it this way. Jesus was on a mission of rescue, not judgment. He was here to rescue them not to judge them. He rebukes James and John. What do you think that interchange cost James? I mean, seriously, can't you just picture that scene? He went from braveheart to rebuked in a moment. Righteous, so he thought, indignation to busted in a moment. Jesus is saying, you've, you've got this thing wrong. You think you're here to right a wrong. I'm calling you to be a rescue hero. By the way, just as we've discovered in the last couple of weeks, we looked at Andrew last week, we looked at Peter. First followers are radical followers. When you follow, it costs you something. James, he has this idea of radical following, and it costs him the luxury of just shrugging his shoulders and indulging his identity as the resident hothead. Jesus was calling that out of him. He said, listen, that's not okay. Stop it. Last week we looked at Peter and how Peter gave Jesus the hammer and the chisel and said, hey, in this nickname, The Rock, go ahead and knock the rough edges off of me. Actually, some of you sent me some messages this past week. I talked just a little bit about how that affects everything. Radical following affects everything, even your political leaning, your allegiance. Who are you choosing to follow? I didn't point this out last week in the message, but at the end of the message, we looked at First and Second Peter and how Peter became what God was calling him to be. And there's this language in First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He says, show respect to everyone, everyone, everyone. I told a story about political disrespect last week. Love the family of believers. Sometimes that's easy. Fear God, honor the emperor. What emperor is he talking about there? When Peter wrote this, guess who he's talking about? Likely, when he wrote this, the emperor of Rome is a man named Nero. He was a filthy guy, killing Christians. Peter is saying, radical followership. You're even supposed to honor that guy, 
There are stories about Nero that he would take Christians and dip them in pitch and stick them on a stake and light them on fire just to give light to his guests as they'd walk around the garden at night. Jesus is saying radical followership, Peter rather is saying radical followership should cost you something. Maybe it costs you your position. Maybe if you're a James, it costs you your pace. Hot-headed Christians. In the tradition of James, son of Zebedee, perhaps there's righteous indignation here. And you're really just using that as an excuse to be a Christian jerk. Remember, Jesus is on a mission of rescue, not judgment. Are you? There's this axiom in our culture that says, follow your passion. Listen, your passion can get you in a lot of trouble if you're not careful. It kind of did that with James. Let me say it this way. Don't let your passion outpace your purpose. Don't let your passion outpace your purpose. Because leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what he called you to do. Do it with all your heart. That means you have to surrender all of your heart, even the passionate parts, to Jesus. Okay, first followers, we've seen the idea of swapping paint with outsiders. We've seen James boxing out outsiders, swapping paint with insiders. Let's look now at his photo finish. It's recorded in Scripture. We see the way this ends. We see the moment where James sees the checkered flag. This is after radical discipleship, 14 years of following close behind Jesus, give or take a year or two. This is the moment where we see him say, welcome, welcome to heaven. The checkered flag at the end of the Indy 500 is one of the most confusing moments in sports for me. Every year in late May, early June, hot day, you're all hot and sweaty. You've just won the Indy 500. Now here, congratulations, here's a gallon of milk. I never have understood. Can, can you imagine how nasty that must smell about an hour later after all the photos are done being taken? I, I look at that, and I know there's a rich tradition that goes back like to the 30s for that, but I always look at that and think, that's a little bit bittersweet. Could I just have a cup of water, please? <laughs> the same with James. He's run with passion. In life and in death, his moment then of here is your reward, I wonder... I wonder how bittersweet that was. Why? Because James was the first to die. Out of the 12 disciples, he's the first to die. He exhibited passion in life. He exhibited passion in death. Let me show you this moment. I'm in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intended to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, the checkered flag, passion in life, passion in death. Passion people, can I ask you this question? How about you? Are you first to die? I love the Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote that says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm under the opinion that we preachers, we lie to people sometimes. We say, come to Jesus. He's going to make everything better. And he does in the long run. He does. Eternity is a pretty sweet gig with Jesus. 
But in the short run, oh, he's going to mess you up. There's going to be some things that he's going to call out of you. There's going to be some things that he's going to call you to step closer behind him, lockstep with him. You follow him. He leads. The Bible talks about this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Not leading, following. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what good is it for somebody to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very soul? As we conclude, could we just simply do a short time, an audit? How you doing in this area? I said this a bit ago, don't let your passion outpace your purpose. What would it look like for you to embrace this axiom? Let me say it this way, in racing terms, passion should draft behind your purpose. Get in behind there. Let the slipstream keep you in lockstep with Jesus. There's less drag there. He wants you behind him. Well, what's, what's your purpose? Well, what was James' purpose? Well, his purpose was to be a radical follower of Jesus, to not get out in front of him. And then later in life, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, James' job was to make Jesus famous. How about you? What's your purpose? It's to get lockstep behind Jesus. To slip into that spot behind the pace car, to, to drag off of Jesus. And it's your job also to make him famous. So let me simply ask you the question, how are you doing in that area? Can I invite you just to simply bow your head and close your eyes right now? How are you doing in radical followership? Let's spend some time praying to God and inviting him to push us in that area. And then we're going to respond with worship. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to follow. It's radical. It's so easy to get out in front and to face that current on our own, but you call us to follow and that's better so as we think through the last week and as we look forward to the next week in front of us God the things that we are seeking to edge outsiders out to swap paint with insiders Lord call us to die to ourselves call us to radical followership remind us where you want us to follow you right now it's in your name in Jesus name we pray